But I think a big misconception is that people think, oh, it's just, you know, you're a walking advertisement. I, I don't, I think it's easy to say that, but I think for a lot of people who have been in this industry for so long, just because they're doing it because they love it and they had no idea 10, 10 15 years ago where this whole space was going to go. You're now listening to The Stream, an Allison and Partners podcast. Welcome to The Stream Podcast. My name's Owen Clark. Joining me in the San Francisco studio and just finishing up our relationship mood board, he's Mike Caparo. Can't wait for you to see it. I worked real hard on it and it came right after my relationship application. So yeah, it's very, very exciting. And Micah, today we're going to touch on another piece of today's complex communications puzzle, and that's the world of the influencer. And it's a big term that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I want to start by talking about what we are going to talk about today, which is what I would consider professional influencers. So one of the things that our agency has done a really great job over the years is talking about how many different types of influencers there are. If you're a journalist, right, or a famous author or a sports player, you're an influencer because the reach you have through your social channel. So that's one vein of influencer. We're not going to talk about that today. What we're going to talk about is the people who are professional influencers. They are going into the field of influence. They list influencer on the top part of their byline. So we're going to talk to two different people who fit that profile, one who's new to the influencer space and one who's seen it all, and talk about what it goes into being an influencer, where they see this headed, and what their day-to-day is like. And so we're going to we're gonna touch on that, go a little bit deeper. Again, I do want to plug that as an agency, we have done some amazing work to date, uh, mapping influence influencer impact score, talking about most recently how marketers and influencers can work better together, how to measure that ROI to be more impactful. But today we're going to take a little bit of a different look into what the personality of an influencer is. So check it out. Do you remember the first time you were called an influencer or someone said that about you? Um, Hmm. I can't remember the exact instance, but it would kind of be those moments of like, oh, you're an influencer now. I think it was probably the minute when I started getting complimentary product to post about was when I was like, okay, this is this turning into something and it could be more. This is Alexis Holden. I think when most people think of today's influencer, they kind of picture Lexi, right? She's young. Her content is very fashionable. It's bright. It's colorful. It has just a look and feel that's very of the moment now for what we expect for influencer content. And she also has an aesthetic. And when I talk about aesthetic, it's more like the Instagram it factor that you know when you see it. And perhaps as important as anything, came up with a very catchy hand. I was trying to think of a name and it was actually my, one of my close friends who I was like, okay, but I really want something that's catchy, um, very punny, but it's totally about city because I think as I look through my content and I define my brand, it really is just all centered around city life and style. So then my friend had just said, why not instead of sex in the city, how about Lex in the city? Like that is you. And that's universal. Um, It was a name that I was like, okay, as I go through the different stages of my life, being 26, living in Chicago with a boyfriend and maybe later on being married and then having kids, it kind of was something that I'm like, okay, this is a timeless name that I can keep forever and that I won't have to change. And so it's interesting. You talk about your brand sort of like it's, you know, like almost like a third person nature, but you're talking about yourself, I guess. Is that weird or is it strange? So much of what you do is wrapped up in you, Lexi, the person. Yeah. I mean, 
it is interesting because when you're talking to other people and how you, how I want to work with other brands, it's, I am clearly pitching myself and what I have to offer to a brand. So it is kind of weird because it's, it's like you have this resume of brands that you've, that I've worked with and I go through, okay, what are past partnerships? What did I love? What were the top highlights of these different campaigns? And I'm selling myself and what I'm capable of and my ideas. I'm not about to say, yeah, I love pretty pictures and, and dressing up and making a photo out of it, right? You have to give it that. You have to pitch yourself and you have to present yourself in the best light because it gives more opportunities to work with bigger brands and to make money as well. Let's talk about some like typical use cases. I think it was last night. You basically just on Instagram stories went through and tried on and opened a bunch of clothes uh, yes. that you'd gotten or, or preparing for a big trip. What goes into that? Like, did you do a couple run-throughs? Was that all done live on <laughs> stories? Like in terms of like that, we're video people. It's like in terms of the on-camera performance, was that something that like you took a while practicing or you just sort of, you've gotten to the point where you can just kind of riff? You know, I have gotten to the point where I, I kind of just riff. Um, there are a few times where I might do it three times and then pick, pick the best one because A, I want to make sure I'm calling out the brand. I'm talking about the different styles of the tops. And it's like, I don't want to overkill it and do five stories for one top that seems a little aggressive so it's like okay I want to keep it within these 15 seconds that I have on Instagram what are the what are most important you know talking points that I want to get through that I want my readers to know um, and show them you know when I'm twirling giving a twirl or showing a different outfit in in those 15 seconds just because I don't want it to I don't want to drag out anything by any means is that something I guess you got better at over time? I mean, your photos look amazing, obviously. And even like by the time now your performance is, you look really comfortable on camera, but I, I was that not the case always when you first started out? I mean, you were blogging originally, right? That's sort of a big jump from blogging to like going, you know, two minutes of unscripted video content. It was hard. And at first I would say, so I've, Lex in the City has been for two years, I would say. And at the beginning, a lot of my content was a mix both on my feed and in my stories of it wasn't just me in the picture. It was me pointing the camera at a dress, but I didn't have it on. So it kind of took that uncomfortable feeling away because it's like, okay, good. I'm not on screen. That alleviates a little bit of the nervousness that I might have with being like, you know, front dead and center. Um, in both, you know, my, my still Instagram content feed, my blog, everything that it, it was a little bit of a mix. And then as I did get more comfortable and I did have to give myself a few pep talks and just trial and error of what was working. And I do notice that in my content, I get more people responding when I'm in front of the camera, more people want to see you. They want to see that you're a real person and that it doesn't look as staged because it's you making eye contact with the camera, you're talking to someone. So it's making that personal connection. So I always make it goal to do more of that because I do see that being more successful and more real. And Mike, I want to pause here for a second and talk about this idea of on-camera performance because we spend a lot of our time working in video trying to get people to perform better on camera. And when you bring a camera to somebody and they're not a professional or paid actor, what do they say 95% of the time? Oh, I hate myself on camera. I hate hearing my voice. I hate seeing myself and how I look. And that's a thing that a lot of people have to get over. And it's actually a skill to not only be able to do it well, but to want to do it to be on camera. You know, in the industry, we, we always hear the term red light fever, right? So when that red light comes on, people just all of a sudden crumble and they don't know. So it is definitely a skill set to be able to go ahead and perform. And I think the interesting thing about influencers is 
when they're performing in front of the camera, they're trying to toe this line between performance art and authenticity and being a genuine person on there. How can I portray my personality in a way that's marketable, but at the same time, people can still relate with? Other pieces, they have to be vulnerable. They have to let people in to their lives, as we hear from Lexi, also some of the lives of the people around them. Can I ask how your, your boyfriend takes all this? Like, did you have to audition him a little <laughs> to see if he performed well on camera before you, you let him on the feed? Or uh, how, did, how does he deal? He he is a trooper. I will say that first and foremost. He at first, it took a lot of practice for him behind the camera. He works full time um, in finance, but we live together. So he's always my go to because we're always together of, of creating photos. And we both our schedules pretty much aligned for the most part of being available on the weekends. And he's an early bird. So if I want to grab a few pictures that I have planned before work in the wee hours of the morning that he's my go to but it did take a lot of frustration at times and on both ends on complete both ends where he's like I'm done with this he's and you know and he jokes I'm not your photographer you don't pay me and I'm like I know I don't but you know I so appreciate his time but now we do have this rhythm of he knows what I'm kind of going for and I, and I tell him what you know what my vision is and we work together I'll give him ideas of kind of like a mood board in advance of what my vision is so he kind of sees that because if I I'm becoming very open of if I don't like how a shoot goes that I tell him I'm like we have to go back and do it again because I'm not going to post this and I, I want it to be how I envisioned it and I want it to be a plus plus because especially if it's a brand partnership um that he he's really like my top go-to person and he um he actually is creating a brand I would say of himself because I'll get Whenever he's on camera, people love Bill, and I so that makes my heart beat out of my chest because people really just laugh, and I get a lot of responses that are very positive about they want more of him. They think he's very funny. Um, so then I let him I let him make an appearance on my feed and in my stories more often because people are beginning to maybe like him more than me. So we want to keep that good that the good times rolling. Yeah, tell him he's doing great. The idea of a relationship mood board is something I'm going to have to bring back back to my own life. I think. I mean, that's probably my favorite thing that's going to come out of this whole interview is that there's a mood board involved. So I really appreciate that. Of course. The term influencer is kind of loaded these days, right? To a certain mm-hmm. I feel like the Fire Festival doc really didn't help the overall conceit. Or oh my gosh. Some people like my wife for the first time, they really understood the concept of it. You mentioned that sort of you're an influencer. Like, do you ever get the, oh, you're an influencer? Like, you know, how do you think people perceive it sometimes? Is it ever negative? I feel like it is so talked about right now that people are able to spot it from a mile away that sometimes it is the most awkward thing when I have to be on a very busy street in the city of Chicago and people are walking by on this bustling street and I'm, you know, doing poses and it's clear that I have a camera and it looks rather professional. So you get some eye rolls, you know, that there's judgment going on of, Oh, like what's going on here. Um, And then when I am talking to people, yeah, I have had, you know, People don't understand that when I'm at, let's say, a restaurant and I'm taking an excessive amount of photos, I always have to remind myself that, yes, when you do feel judgment or if there is a comment being made, that a lot of the time people don't know the full story, right, about they don't know what the exchange was or what the agreement was and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, do they need to know? No, but, you know, it's it's work. Like, it is a job, and I feel like at the end of the day, People might not be able to grasp that because they they only think of it as far as you're just taking pretty you're just taking pretty photos you're just taking photos of your food 
it, it doesn't mean anything, right? It's just over the top. But at the end of the day, it is an agreement that you have with a company that you don't want to let down. So I always try and tell myself and Bill because he's just like, oh, God, like <laughs> I'm so embarrassed of like being on this busy street and taking photos and so many people are staring. And it, But then he reminds himself like, you know what? Lexi's getting paid for this and that's why we're doing it. And it's like they don't know that. They don't need to know. But it's a thing that I have to constantly remind myself because it is there is judgment, um, sometimes good, sometimes negative, and it is a balancing act of how to juggle it. What's the biggest misconception people have about influencers? Ooh. Well, I think it's hard in in this influencer industry to – know if an influencer is really a fan of a brand or if they're just doing it for the money. I think a big misconception right now is an influencer is only in in this job and in this industry for the money. For me, it was more I just have so many other passions and hobbies that I, I want to show people. And if they take an interest to it, great. And if I can, you know, if it turns into brand partnerships, amazing. But I think a big misconception is that people think, oh, it's just, you know, you're a walking advertisement. I, I don't, I think it's easy to say that, but I think for a lot of people who have been in this industry for so long that it is a, a very big misconception just because they're doing it because they love it and they had no idea 10, 10 15 years ago where this whole space was going to go. Okay, Micah, so that's the perspective of, we'll say, the modern influencer, right? Someone in Lexi's age who's really relatively new to the field and has really grown up in sort of this age when influencer was a term that everyone understood and everyone knew. So what about those people from 10 or 15 years ago who watched this whole evolution of the industry? That's actually a pretty good question, Owen. And to get that insight, we talked to James Hills. I kind of reject the, uh, the term influencer. I prefer blogger. Maybe that's because I'm old school, but... Uh, I think that bloggers can be influencers, but not all influencers are, are bloggers and kind of vice versa. Well, pick your term. James certainly is an influencer by today's standards. He runs the men's lifestyle brand Man Trippin' and over his career has really seen the evolution of the entire influencer industry. The, uh, the short version is I uh, was doing video game development back in the mid-90s and I found out I wasn't a good uh, programmer. I wasn't a good uh, artist but I could talk about stuff. So I started uh, promoting uh, these video games online and uh, I got really excited about uh, just the freedom of being able to to talk and to share and to create content without having the barriers of, of a traditional media. You know, I, I had some time that I spent at WashingtonPost.com and, uh, you know, obviously there or, or at any organized media, if you will, you'd have to, uh, you know, pitch your editor and, you know, your thoughts became, muddled through you know, three or four levels of copy editors and copywriter uh, you know, type uh, filters. And uh, so that's kind of when I uh, decided to start writing online. I had a few different uh, blogs that I wrote at different points. And then ultimately, man tripping, I was running a marketing agency in Chicago. And I was like around, around the time of the dot-com implosion. And unfortunately, I had an office and I had a computer and a, a space and lots of free time, <laughs> but no money to actually go to the place to do the things that I wanted to do. So I just started writing and sort of traveled vicariously. And then it sort of it went from there where I got a, uh, a call from a guy in in New York said, hey, I'm doing a press trip in, in Atlantic City. Do you want to come out? And I think looking back at it, I'm sure he was just joking. Uh, but uh, being the 
the young and, and not uh, not busy kind of guy. I wrapped everything up in the car and drove from Chicago to Atlantic City for a free hotel night. And uh, like this was kind of cool. So what was your thinking when you sort of made that decision to, to pivot a little bit in your career? What was, did you have a set plan? Like, I'm going to do this, 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 or was it more like, I'm passionate about writing and I, I just want to give this a shot. Like take us back to what that, what sort of the landscape was like back then. You know, I, I think the reality is it was the late nineties and, and I needed to get, I needed to communicate. I didn't have a printing press. So it was just a, out of necessity, I started writing online in the, I guess it was called the early, the early thousands when um, it was just a gold mine for MFA made for AdSense sites where I could blog about that had a great one for uh, business travel and convention travel. And I could write about different conventions in Chicago and people came searching on Google for, you know, XYZ convention help or XYZ, you know, convention set up. And I was getting crazy, crazy clicks as well as driving um, low cost uh, ads to that page. So it was just an easy way of making money. And then it became an easy way of, of living vicariously and, and getting free stuff. So you were pretty aware early on of sort of the business value of the content you were creating on your own, right? You sort of saw that and were able to, to map that even from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I was doing a bunch of consulting for various uh, women's travel sites at the time. And I looked around and I was like, you know, there's there's a big, huge hole in the market uh, that was beyond the, the women's travel and beyond the mom travel. And I said, hey, you know, this, let's do something for guys. So I looked around and, and saw that the only stuff out there for, for guys was really the boys behaving badly kind of stuff. That wasn't me, um, and it wasn't a lot of the guys that I knew. And so I wanted to create something that uh, that emulated activities that I would enjoy, activities that I don't want to say wholesome, but things that I could share. It's like if I wrote about them that I could have my wife see, or if I did them, I could have my wife look at or my dad look at or my mom look at, and I wouldn't get in trouble. Whereas you know, at the time, things like Maxim and and, uh, and those sites, when they talked about travel, it was really stuff that I wouldn't want to talk about with my mom or my wife. <laughs> and so I uh, I looked around and started, and originally I was going to try to make it something around Mancation, but the Mancation uh, brand had been uh, used by a few different sites. And uh, I said, well, you know, let's try something that, that I can own. And that's when I came with the word man tripping. And so at the time, it was specifically focused on men's travel, uh, guys' weekends, vacations, uh, those kind of things. And so I, I started building out, you know, what brands, what product lines would you use in terms of a, a guys' weekend or, or travel? And what ones have the opportunity to get paid while still keeping it? Unified because a lot of sites that I see that try to do a similar strategy end up being all over the place, and and I was for you know for a couple of years as I while well, I tried to figure stuff out, but now bringing stuff together where it's a mixture of of paid and and uh, and non paid media uh, it's worked out pretty well. So how do you find that balance, right? Because I do feel like that's a really key question that whatever the channel is that you're on, if you're engaging with brands as an influencer, that balance is sort of central to the to the ROI for you keeping that position and for making sure the brands get what they want, which is an audience that's engaged and authentic and trusts your, your words. So is there, do you have a ratio? Like how do you decide how much of your content uh, is, you know, essentially paid for? Yeah, it's a constant calibration and, and adjustment. And I, I face that on a, on a daily basis where there's, I mean, I, I get 
dozens and dozens and dozens of, of opportunities and, and sometimes competing press trips even where I have to prioritize somehow. And it's not even a matter of does it fit the site or does it not fit the site. It's a, okay, I've got two awesome opportunities to write about something. This one is paying me $1,000 for the post, and this one is paying me nothing. So I, I have to do the one that pays. And so as a as a downside, the one doesn't pay loses out. Um, and that sucks for the one that doesn't pay, but that's their decision. I should probably fess up and say I've had the experience working on the PR side. We had you know, a large auto manufacturer we were doing loans for. And I remember, you know, you're usually working with traditional journalists for reviews and then trying to work with, with mom bloggers at the time and then being like, what's the payment? And then me being like, no, uh, we're giving you a car for a week. And then being like, yeah, I know, what's the payment? I was like, you don't understand that I'm giving you a car, a $40,000 car to drive around for a week for free. Like, isn't that enough? But it took me a while to understand getting that value equation you explained of them needing that, so that you, needing additional funds to essentially drive the revenue for the site, you know, to, to make it ongoing. So actually, I just got a, a car dropped off. That's uh, a $94,000 car starting out. I don't know what the, the equipped price is. But I'm guessing it'll be touching $100,000. That's cool. You know, in, in your example of, of I just gave you a car for a week, that seems like a great opportunity. The reality is I'm going to have to spend hours taking photos. I'm going to spend hours driving the car to, to evaluate it. I'm going to spend an hour at least, if not two hours, writing the article. And I'm going to spend at least an hour promoting it on social media. Uh, so that's if if I value my time at somewhere as consultant rate at 100 to 250 dollars an hour, that's almost a thousand dollars I'm spending just invested in, in uh, exploring the product to promote it to on your behalf. You know, it's not just time. It's not just a oh cool this is this is fun they sent me a car, but it, it's actually real work and and in many cases real dollars too. And Mike, I just want to pause there to compare what James is talking about with the hourly rates to the world we're in, which again is video production. We spend all our time looking at how long it's going to cost us to do a shoot. What is you know lighting going to cost? How much time are we going to have to put into that? And that's how we budget. That's how we budget our services. But I still think that agency life or traditional creative life is thought of differently than sort of influencer and the way influencers do their rates. But I guess... Has this process made you think any differently about whether influencers should be paid for their work or not? I mean, I feel like an influencer is almost just like a freelance creative, and I feel like any freelance creative should get paid. Just the amount of time that goes into setting up a shot, uh, making sure it's right, having to work within a brand's guidelines, that all takes thought, time, and resources. So why wouldn't they get paid? And again, I think that is where we're going to continue to see a really interesting look forward, which is do people who are inherently creative, who want to go into creative medium, don't want to have as much control they might find through a studio system or an agency or a, t a journalism entity, do they choose to go this influencer route, understanding they're going to have to be beholden to the brands who sponsor them? Or there are there other channels, Twitch, for example, that, that are less controlling, that become the new medium for the most creative people sort of coming up through society. And that's really interesting, but I think at the end of the day, it still is going to take a certain type of person to be successful in this field. And James has some thoughts on that. What else do you think defines a, a, good, a good influencer? Like, if, you know, if someone's coming through the ranks today, um, wh what do you think is going to set those apart who succeed versus those that don't? I think the, the the number one thing is you have to have something to say, and it has to be something 
unique and it has to be something where you have a thousand percent confidence in yourself. You know, I, I know a guy that I met on an auto trip uh, who, to be honest, the guy was kind of a little bit mousy and he didn't really, didn't really say a lot, but when he was on camera, he was awesome. And you know, the, the trick there is simply he had something to say and he had a lot of knowledge and he said it beyond that though. An influencer needs to be able to to look strategically to be successful, needs to be able to network with, with brands, needs to be able to uh, have some uh, some stamina to overcome disappointment and, and uh, obstacles. Uh, but those kind of things are really two sides of the same coin. You just need to be able to say like, hey, I'm going to do this and F all you guys that say I'm not going to because I'm going to do it. I wanted to ask you for a story on, on one of the most – I'll say cool or interesting things you've done in your influencer role. Could be a trip, could be a product. Just like, what's something when you think back of like, where you sort of like were pinching yourself thinking, I can't believe I actually get to get to do this. So I'm going to give you two examples because I get so many things that conventionally would be absolutely off the track. Amazing. That, you know, would be a complete bucket list. But the reality is, and this is some that little paradox where, a bunch of us kind of say, hey, you know, everything we do, I've done five bucket list things this, this year, and things aren't as bucket listy as they once were. From the conventional coolest thing recently, it's a toss-up between – I did a trip doing to uh, Ukraine sampling uh, uh, vodka and, and touring vodka distilleries. Uh, that was super cool because it was something that, that really nobody else does. And the other one was uh, I just spent four days with Wide Open Baja doing a, uh, a Baja racing adventure. And uh, that was just am- absolutely amazing because it was so gritty, so real, so authentic, seeing parts of Mexico that uh, most people will never see. But those are both things that really, you know, with anybody with money could, could buy either of, either of those. So the trip that is standing out in my mind is, as the ultimate thing I've done in the last few years you guys are probably going to laugh, but with a road trip around North Dakota. And every one of my friends was like, what are you doing? Why are you going to North Dakota? There's nothing up there. And for the next five days, we're driving around North Dakota, seeing just amazing places that, that most people will never see. We get stuck in the, in the middle of a herd of buffalo in the middle of the road for, for I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, where buffalo were literally laying in, around us in, in, on the road. Like, I couldn't move because I wasn't going to hit a buffalo. <laughs> and then, you know, just experiences like that, you know, went to a little town where, I mean, I don't know, probably wasn't more than 500 people in the town. And we had been told by the CVB that they had, a, it was the like one of five Whirl-O-Whip machines left in the country. Like, what the hell is a Whirl-O-Whip? Well, but that's the kind of question that I'd love to answer. So we went to this town and went to a drugstore and, you know, everyone's seen like Leave it to Beaver and those 1950s kind of movies where you go to a drugstore and they've got a soda fountain counter. Yeah. Well, this place had an honest to God soda fountain counter and the whirl of whip is a, is like an ancient predecessor to the, uh, the blizzard. So of course we had to have one, uh, you know, flash forward. And I can't give you the, the, you know, the play by play for all four days, but the coolest thing there was sitting there having a you know, wine tasting and, and yes, there's, there's wine in North Dakota. And it's actually pretty good wine. The guy looks across the table and says, you ever driven a combine? I'm like, how drunk are we? Did this guy just ask me if I've ever driven a combine? 
and you know being an, a guy who loves auto, you know automotive stuff and big huge machines and that kind of stuff i go well no but that'd be cool and an hour later we're sitting in the uh, the cab of this seven hundred fifty thousand dollar combine harvesting soybeans and it was just such a this this amazing experience because it was an opportunity to see stuff that's right here in our own country that nobody else sees yeah that's probably the the coolest travel experience that I've had uh, in the lifespan of uh, man tripping. Wow, North North Dakota was not was not on the board for potential selections. That's that's fascinating, but but does say a lot about how the experience plays a lot into it. Where do you see this this whole thing headed? Um, it feels like more and more people are getting into the influencer space. More and more brands are at least aware of participating in it. Um, are we reaching a saturation point? Is there a, a, a reckoning coming? What do you see as, as sort of the, the future? I think the, the trend that's happening, it, it's already it's already happened. It's been percolating a little bit for the last year or so. But we've reached a point where you mentioned saturation. I'm going to refer to it as, as commoditization. And it's extremely intense this year. There's so many, quote unquote, influencers out there that brands feel that they can just monetize it based on a on a CPA uh, kind of basis. You're seeing all these sites come out and saying like, okay, you know, I'm going to give you $10 for an Instagram post when the Instagram post used to be, you know, $400 because they, they know that they'll get somebody to do it for $10. And they're kind of right, but they're not looking at, they're not looking at it from a value perspective. They're looking at it from a perspective of there's just so many people out there with Instagram accounts. They don't feel that they need to pay me to actually do something that's going to be a good uh, a good quality product. It's one on a account that has X reach. The the challenge with that is how do I stand out? How do I make myself not not just a channel, not just a a blog, not just a number? When you break free from the commoditization and you say I want Toyota to hire me. I want Samsung to hire me. I want them to go like, "Hey, you know, I know James has a point of view. I know James has a unique uh, perspective." I know James is going to deliver the content on time. It's a relationship building opportunity. And so he's also going to help us out when there's not uh, not budget to actually do a paid campaign. I think the mass market, everybody is a, is a uh, influencer thing is still going to be there. And so I think that you're going to have a separation between people like, hopefully I'm on the right side of this, uh, but people like myself that are looked at as, as professional um, content creators and influencers, whatever the heck the word needs to be. But then having an opportunity for all the other people who simply want Kroger to send them, you know, some free uh, some free mayonnaise to do a sandwich that they put on Instagram. And so I think that those can be two different tactics. And I want to be on the uh, the side that's making money and that's having the uh, choice of which cool opportunities to keep doing. Well, there you have it, Micah, the world of influencer. Again, I really want to encourage anybody who's interested in this topic to check out what we've done in Allison and Partners. There's, we have really interesting videos, case studies, white papers that go deep into this universe and how to understand it, and especially how to work with it if you're a marketer or someone in the marketing field. You know, this adds a little bit to the, the bigger picture and everything that goes into the influencer process. Uh, check out Micah on his many influencer platforms. <laughs> Micah.gif. All right. Word. Thanks for joining us. And if you want to give us feedback or if there's a topic you want us to cover, please send us an email at streampod at allisonpr.com.